celebration of sobriety. Thank Bob and the, the committee for inviting me to come share with you in this uh, weekend of unity and celebration of sobriety. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I love it with every ounce of my being, and I want to thank uh, my host. I want to thank, uh, we went to uh, some dinner place over on, uh, I don't know, over there. And uh, every, every menu I looked at is not, is not uh, dental friendly. And uh, some denture work done, and, and uh, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, and that's not a good thing. And uh, we just got started getting to know each other and, and starting to befriend each other. And, you know, that's not like me. I'm, I'm not like that. I'm very shy. Uh, people don't believe that, but I am. I'm, I'm reticent to come out of myself. I really like it in here. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> It's scary out there. I'm okay in here. I want to thank Bob for his talk Friday night. I identified with much of his pitch, and Hank, uh, I haven't laughed like that in a long time. I, it really feels good to laugh, doesn't it? It does something to me, and it reminded me, and I guess I want to do this and get it out of the way. I've, I've really been uh, blessed through hard work and self-sacrifice in AA, not born of virtue, but of complete and utter desperation, knowing that if I don't do the things I do, I am going to drink again someday. And if you're new in this room or perhaps need to be renewed, I want to welcome you to the fellowship and the way of life called AA. I have found a way to go here that has produced results in my life that are truly incomprehensible for me, for where I came from to where I am today. And if you're new, I have a minor suggestion for you. Sponsorship has been incredibly important to me, and it still is today. My sobriety date is November 8, 1977. I haven't had a drink, pill, powder, potion, or lotion in my body since that day. <laughs> Though I've had the notion. Some well-meaning AAs make it look pretty good. But then my sponsor talked me into watching them. And I watch. Not out of judgment, but out of self-preservation. You see, I don't ever want to drink again. And I've learned as an alcoholic I can't quit drinking. Well, I want to. I've tried to. But I've seen many people with more time than me drink again. Therefore, I know I don't have the capacity within me to quit drinking. So what I've got is a daily reprieve contingent upon the maintenance and growth of my spiritual condition, as I understand it, through the actions that I find in the AA way of life as governed to me through the act of sponsorship. And I want you to know that, newcomer, that that's a viable, incredibly important part of the AA way of life. Uh, I have a profound faith in the God of my own understanding, but I've got to tell you something. In and of itself, I would be doomed. See, I've been sprinkled, dunked, and drowned in every near every religion you can think of being baptized, and they meant well. But all I do is almost drown. I'll mention that in a minute. But what I want to talk about is is, is I'm just I guess I'm kind of fumbling. I, Twenty years ago, I was in a convention, and I was sitting out there. And if you're new, like you are right now, as a matter of fact, it was twenty years and four months, and. Uh, my sponsor, I was sober about three minutes. And my sponsor said I had to get out of the dumpster clothes I was in. Because I've been living in a dumpster. And uh, he said, we're taking you to a convention. And he took me down to the Salvation Army to buy me some go-to-convention clothes. <laughs> now, the only clothes they had, and I remember, I'm pretty sensitive. My sponsor bought me this lime green double-knit polyester suit. <laughs> And the lining was yellow. And 
I had green tennis rackets. And the only shoes that the Salvation Army had that would fit me that day were these black and brown dual Oxford four-inch platform heel hitting shoes. And I had to wear these purple and yellow tie-dyes from the old days, socks. And they took me over to the underwear department, and I said, no way. I ain't buying that underwear. So we got out of Salvation Army for about $1.85 or $1.95. We went to this convention. My sponsor is named Barney at that time. He, he, he's introduced me to all these people. Every time we'd, they'd shake his hand, they wouldn't laugh. Every time they'd shake my hand, they'd start laughing. And finally, I had all I could take. And he, I said, Barney, are they laughing at me? He says, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he says, you're a sight to behold. <laughs> he says, but I got a clue for you. If you learn to laugh at yourself, you'll never be left unamused. <laughs> and uh, I was filled with the hopelessness and despair and the phoniness of a newcomer. I truly wanted help, but I didn't have the capacity to say help me with any earnestness behind it to which I would commit and submit and surrender myself to alternative conduct to which I was accustomed to another. And there was a guy up here speaking on Saturday night at the banquet, and uh, he started talking, and, and I'm sitting out there, and I'm thinking, that can never be for me. I'm not, like, I'm not good enough. I will never be able to be that type of an AA member. I'd, I'm glad he's got that. That was 20 years and four months ago. And uh, who would have ever thought that 20 years later he'd be my sponsor and that I would be asked to share the podium with him? Isn't that an amazing thing? It's not a miracle. The miracle is Alcoholics Anonymous took place June 10th, 1935. I'm just a very fortunate and humbled recipient of that miracle. And I don't ever want to forget that because when I start thinking I'm a miracle, interesting things happen. I get godly. I outgrow my sponsors. Y'all ever done that? I got to talk about drinking. You might think I'm a depressed Protestant looking for a wife. I love to drink. I do. I love Budweiser more than life itself. When I was in Vietnam, my uh, uh, shipmates, they had pictures of Playboy pinups on the wall. I had an 8x10 glossy of the Clydesdales. <laughs> I did. I've never been one to be accused of being wrapped, right? I'll talk about a little bit of what it was like and what's happened to me and what I'm like now because that's what I'm obligated to according to the, the text and the history and the experience of the alcoholics that have come before me. And I don't want to screw none of you newcomers up with my thinking. <laughs> I have enough time swirling around it myself. I come from an alcoholic home. My dad died from untreated alcoholism. He was a redneck truck driver, drove truck for 32 years and led the fight. My mother was a barroom drinker, not an alcoholic. Uh, she loved to fight too, men. My mother was a wrestler. She, uh, really, she, uh, she stood about five foot four. She weighed about 200 pounds and no fat. Weightlifter. And she had flying eagles tattooed on each forearm. She had other tattoos, but we ain't going there today. <laughs> and you know, we were a saloon family. I was raised in a bar. We, we would go down to the tavern, and, and my dad would play poker, and my mom would play euchre, and I'd, I was a ballroom athlete. 
I, I shoot pool, billiards, picks, darts, shuffleboard, bowling, poker, 50-yard dash to the bathroom. And you know what I'm thinking? There's a lot of things that went on in that alcoholic home. I, when I went to therapy before I came there, I found out I was abused. That almost killed me. I really had a good time. There's a lot of twists and turns. And the reason why I'm going to tell you what my perception is of what they did to me due to their behavior, I'm not going to do that because I'm going to lie to you. Because I want you to feel sorry for me. I don't mean to. It's just the way it is. And I'm going to tell you all the disgusting things that my family, I think, did to me, and perhaps they did to some degree, and they're not going to be able to walk in that door of AA someday free and clear of judgment because I have pronounced judgment on them. And so I'm going to leave that for my sponsor. If I need to discuss pertinent information like that, I'm not going to bring it to you because we're judgmental people. We don't mean to be. We just are. We're good at it. I love to sit and report. I grew up kind of strange in that home. It ain't because my mom turned me upside down, spanked me on the head and said, now run. I'm like, I grew up weird because I'm weird. I had these feelings I didn't understand. And in the circumstances around me, no one appeared to be like me. And I didn't know what that was. I, I know I felt different. I know that I could look at my own family, and they were rock country western. My whole family's country and western. I was so sick of any kind of cowboy thing, and I was rock and roll. My daddy didn't want me to be rock and roll because they do things. They might do drugs. And I was rock and roll just because they were country and western. You tell me I can't, and that's the very next thing I have to do quickly. And, and I don't understand it because I don't like the price I eventually have to pay, and I don't understand that. In the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, there's a chapter called The Doctor's Opinion. And I really appreciate that chapter. It really helped me. It helped me a great deal in my sobriety. Dr. Silkworth is the only non-alcoholic allowed in our big book. We don't want no outside opinions in there, folks. We want one alcoholic sharing with another alcoholic. But this guy gave Bill Wilson such a profound understanding of his medical condition that it caused enough desperation for him to cry out for help and led him to another alcoholic to found AA. So it's pretty important to me. And I understand my condition, whereas I didn't understand it before. Uh, when you're new, you don't necessarily need to understand that. You just need to go do. And I know that. But I come to understand something about myself that I didn't understand for a long time. And it stemmed from a talk Clancy gave 20 years ago in four months. He talked about an ism thing, about an E over I, I over E thing. He talked about the emotions of an alcoholic. And he mentioned the disease of perception. Now, I would never give him credit for that because, frankly, I didn't like him 20 years ago. He was a hero and I was nothing. See, I sit and I look at Bill and Bob's picture on the wall and I envision my picture floating up between them. <laughs> and if anybody's in the way, i got to equal the playing field. Now, I think I come by that naturally. Dr. Silkworth gives a description of symptoms in the doctor's opinion, as does Father Ed Dowling and Reverend Sam Shoemaker in the 12 and 12 and 80 comes of age. And I guess it's the best way I like to share who I really am and what I understand about my feelings. When I tell you I'm an alcoholic, according to these fine gentlemen, here's what I'm really telling you. Though I know I look to you like I'm a full-grown adult, in all reality, I came to you and I remain childish, grandiose, and immature. As a growing human concern, my natural state as a human being is one of growing anxiety, depression, and fear, coupled with an intense desire for excitement. (laughs) 
which is exacerbated with and complicated by an obsessive, compulsive, impulsive, excessive, commanding, controlling need for attention. <laughs> Acceptance and approval. A condition of being which renders me restless, irritable, and discontent with life. Now, Silver and the Shoemaker consider that an internal spiritual maladjustment, the ism, internal spiritual maladjustment. Dr. Silver suggests that, here's a little hope for my future, I am maladjusted to life and in full flight from reality. <laughs> now, in my case, this is how that maladjustment appears in me. It affects my mental and emotional nature as such. Mentally, my thought life is governed by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity, all of which drive me to live my life according to selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, inconsiderate, resentful, and frightened motives. Motives which, left unattended in me, arouse and engage dangerous and life-threatening levels of lust. <laughs> Pride, anger, envy, greed, sloth, and gluttony. That combination renders me emotionally a bit sensitive. Which means I have a strong tendency toward taking everything I see or hear personal. I don't like criticism, and I can't take praise that embarrasses me to death. When it comes to suffering emotionally, I don't like it. And I don't do it alone. <laughs> Socially, I'm a bankrupt idealist and brooding perfectionist who is defensively unguarded in fear of being found out. As such, I tend to rationalize, minimize, justify, and deny all my actions while casting blame upon innocent people in a vigorous attempt to avoid detection. <laughs> my outstanding characteristic is defiance, and rebellion dogs my every step. That's a catalog of my finer qualities. Anybody want a date? <laughs> Ain't nothing the matter here, Mom. The wind's not blowing. <laughs> now they suggest that that leaves me in a restless, irritable, and discontented state. You're damn right it does. Now all that's meaningless if that's all I have, because that millions of people have that condition. I just have it to the tenth power. And Dr. Silkworth talks about an effect produced by alcohol, and essentially that's why alcoholics drink, newcomer, is because alcohol does something for us. We're not supposed to know it does, and we don't know. If you're new, you can't know this. I didn't. I didn't know it until I heard my sponsor mention it in his own way 20 years ago. I didn't know this. Chuck Chamberlain talked about unconscious separation leading to conscious separation and conscious unity. I had no idea what that meant. I do today. Alcohol, according to Dr. Silkworth and another related experience, tells me this. When I drink and ingest alcohol into my system, something profoundly unnatural and abnormal takes place. It produces a sense of seeming normalcy. And that's why I drink, pal. 
And I needed it long before I took it. Now, when you take those feelings I have, bearing in mind what Dr. Silkworth tells us, I guess, I'm not a psychologist, so I don't get into all that psycho stuff, but I can tell you that a lot of experiences in my life appear to be an attempt to validate the maladjustment that I feel within me. And here's how it came out in me. I felt this maladjustment in such a manner that I really felt retarded. I did. I'd look at you and think, what's wrong with me? Right away, look at who you are. I have this seemingly unique ability to walk in the room anywhere I go. And it doesn't matter who you are, what color you are, what race you are, what religion you are, what sex or sexual preference you may be. I look at you and I can immediately tell why I am different and less than you. And when I feel less than you, I have to move swiftly and surely to level the playing field. If you get my drift. So I came out retarded. The funny thing is, if you act retarded, they'll diagnose you that way. I got diagnosed retarded in the ninth grade. And they put me in the retarded class. Not remedial, not slow, retarded. And I did so good they kept me there. <laughs> My report card read, Wayne is an over underachiever. <laughs> I find out retarded boys can go to the girls' bathroom and not get detention. <laughs> I successfully never cracked a book the entire time I was totally uneducated and retarded to boot. It was, it was hell. I wanted to blame somebody, but I hadn't been to therapy yet. Uh, you know how that is. I wasn't going to think. I had an idea what an alcoholic was. When I was 12 years old, my dad, I now know he was defending his own drinking, took my family to Chicago, and he took us down to Maxwell Street, which was Skid Row at that time, and he took us over to Clark and Randolph Street, and he walked us through the alleyways. I think he was trying to get me and my brother perhaps not to drink. I don't know. But he was saying, that's an alcoholic, that's an alcoholic, that's an alcoholic. And here's what I noticed. Every one of them was drinking out of a brown paper bag. And that makes him an alcoholic. I submit to you, to this very day, I have never drank nothing out of a brown paper bag. Just on the outside chance. In my senior year retarded class, I know you find it hard to believe. <laughs> a friend of mine named Tom, who used to take care of us retarded kids, he took us on field trips. And uh, you know how Bill Wilson was always wanting to be number one kind of a guy? There was 12 of us in the retarded class. I was there later. <laughs> He took me to this dance. I was his number one favorite. And I went to that party 6'3", 120 pounds, feeling ugly and retarded. And didn't want, I had 19 and a half inch feet for crying out loud. And I know everybody just stares at him. I just said, quit laughing! <laughs> you know, you get that way after a few years of self-concentration. <laughs> and I had pimples everywhere. I had pimples that if you'd have popped a pimple, my face would have fallen off. I just did this bad. Do you get the picture how ugly I was? I remember somewhere around eight or nine years old, I was looking in the mirror at home, and I said to myself, Butler, it's too bad, pal. That's going to be a long life. And it's going to be lonely because you are butt ugly. Now, now my, mama didn't do, my mama did not sit me down and go, oh, 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 just out of mercy, I'd put you back if I could. That is not what my mother said, but that's what I heard when she said, I love you. I hear funny. My sponsor calls it a disease of perception. So I went to that party and I stand up against the wall watching everybody dance and have a good time. 
And I'm wanting to go out there and do something, but I don't know what to do because I ain't never done it. And I eyeballed this. Tom brought me over a brown bottle, long-necked, with a red, white, and blue label. It's Budweiser. He said, here, drink this. It'll make you feel better. So I drank it. I said, Tom, that tastes terrible. I want a Pepsi-Cola. Tom said, that's okay. You'll get used to it. Now, he did not mean what I discovered. Tom was a social drinker and still is. He was just telling me, I'm new at it. I'm going to have to puke a little bit probably and get a little bit used to it, and then I'll be a normal drinker like everybody else that goes through high school. That was his basic message, though that is not what took place. Silkworth talks about an abnormal, unusual reaction. It is also an unconscious reaction beyond my capacity to contain and control it, rendering me absolutely powerless over the effect alcohol produces for me. I had no idea that that was gauging a fatal, impassable obsession in my mind for alcohol. I drank it, and I drank four more. So much between four and five Budweiser's, I got so good looking, I couldn't stand it. <laughs> Almost as good looking as Bob there. I, just, I looked on that dance floor, and I bought me a blue-eyed blonde. Walked right up to her without a hesitation and asked her to dance. I've never danced in my life. And she said, okay. We fumbled through it. Found out later that night sex meant two people. <laughs> we fumbled through that. And it really destroyed my passion for sex because I've been having sex since I was 13. I thought I was getting to be an expert at it. I had a blackout that night, and I didn't know what a blackout was. Why would I? Now I know they're not uncommon, because I've been in AA a while, and I know they're not uncommon. But I couldn't remember what happened that night, and Tom told me I had a good time. I said, okay. I went back to retarded class. A few weeks later, my dad calls me in and says, we got a problem. I said, what's that? He says, you know that girl you was with at that party? I said, yes, sir. He said, she's 16. I said, okay. He said, she's pregnant. I said, uh, what's that mean? I mean, I'm retarded, but I ain't stupid. I could hear it. <laughs> See, in the state of Illinois, there's little law. Any boy, 14 or older, has sex with a girl, 17 or younger, whether they want to or not, doesn't matter. It's called statutory rape. I said, what's that mean? My dad says, 20 years to life. I said, even if you're retarded, <laughs> got to use what you got. <laughs> and I found out, yeah. So I did a little research in the retarded class and found out that if you marry him, you don't go to jail. So I fell in love. <laughs> we talked to her parents and my parents into letting us get married. We drove to Palmyra, Missouri, where if you got enough money, you could marry your 10-year-old cousin. <laughs> That's not judgment, just fact. And uh, we went down there and we got married. You got a picture of this. We're coming back from Palmyra, Missouri. With my mom and dad in the front seat, me and my wife, baby on the way in the back seat. And I'm realizing I'm a married man about to be a father and I'm going to graduate the retarded class in high school. And I drank one time. I'm done with that. So there's a thing about me. I don't understand it. But when the heat gets turned on here, I want to go over there where it's a little cooler. I get geographical quick. Find out there's a furnace everywhere you go. <laughs> My brother was in the Navy. He was, on, he was on board a thing called an aircraft carrier in the Gulf of Tonkin, Vietnam. Now, I don't know nothing about Vietnam. I'm deluded with myself. I have no concept of reality. But I want to join the Navy because I know it's a long way from where I am. So I asked my dad, can I join the Navy? My dad looked me in the eye and he says, I don't know if they'll take a retarded kid, but let's go see it. <laughs> Now, 
Take the love that day. So we went down to the Naval Recruiter's office, and I filled all the paperwork out. This was in January 1967. Vietnam was just getting a good start going, good run. And uh, they had me fill out all the paperwork, and I took the Naval Entrance Exam, and I scored in the upper 3 percentile of the United States Navy. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Not bad for a retarded kid, huh? <laughs> so we told him my story. My mom and dad really wanted me to do some military duty. And... Uh, so I joined the Naval Reserve, which would give me time to graduate school. And I did. I graduated school. We birthed that child. And I went to a party to celebrate going somewhere in the United States Navy. And uh, I went to that party. And it still points out in the big book about an, an abnormal drinker such as me, newcomer, experiences strange mental twists prior to a lapse into drinking. I went to that party and I saw Budweiser and made a conscious decision not to drink it, though I love it, because I don't want no more babies. I saw this bottle, this large quart-like bottle of clear liquid called tequila. I don't know what tequila is. It could have been 7-Up for all I know, so I drank the whole bottle. Tom warned me that that stuff would get me. I didn't know what he meant. I do now. It means I'm going to talk to God. In person. That's why when I hear messages from God in my sobriety, I call my sponsor to let him know that uh, God's talking to me. Because this message was clear. I heard it clear. I told God about all the things that I thought was done to me and my family, and I want to know what I could do to take care of business. And I heard God under the influence of tequila tell me to go home and kill my family. That's what I heard. So I went over to my mother's house in a blackout. Went in the house in the middle of the night, blew all the pilot lights out, turned all the gas on, and ran on the front porch away from my family to die. I came through that morning somewhere between 5 and 6 in the morning, and my mother beat me in the head. My mother was frantic. She was sick from the gas. The people in the house that were there were sick. They didn't die because I forgot to close the windows. <laughs> so he took me to the doctor. It was one of many trips to see a psychiatrist. And the doctor gave me a series of tests. The MMPI, Cal State Poly. Gave me the inkblot test too. That was kind of cute. And I passed. Uh, I was in that office. This was June of uh, 1968. June. And... Uh, I'm talking to this psychiatrist, and uh, he says, Mrs. Butler, we can't let your son go. We've diagnosed your son a psychopath. He has no conscience, no remorse, no guilt, no shame, no fear of punishment. We're of the collective opinion if we let him go, he'll probably kill you. We can't take that responsibility. My mother, God love her, she says, you can't keep him. He's in the Navy. <laughs> and I thought, go on. people who do things for me. And this doctor was wise to the deal going on in Southeast Asia. And he says, you know what, given your son's diagnosis, I think I know a good place for him. And by July of 1968, I was at Treasure Island in San Francisco, and by September of 1968, I was in country. Scared to death. A little 18-year-old puke kid that scared to death of the entire world and don't know what to do, but I know one thing, I'm not drinking. And I saw a lot of people doing drugs, and I made a conscious decision not to do any drugs. And to this day, I've never done a drug. I didn't do any drugs because I didn't want to get addicted to them. And I saw a lot of my buddies getting killed because they were so loaded they couldn't defend themselves. And I made a decision, it's going to be harder on Charlie to get me than that. So I went three years on the Natch, put a definite spin on my personality. 
Now, a lot of things happened while I was gone. I'm not going to go into detail about them. But by the time I got back, I had three rows of ribbons. I'd been recognized for bravery. I had good duty. I got detached to a destroyer in San Diego. I was a captain's driver, and I played baseball for the Seventh Fleet. I was a good athlete. And I'm going to tell you something. I had it made. I loved the Navy. And they told me what to do, where to go, and when to be there, and I could do that. I have no problem with that. As long as I've got some structure confining me, I can do that. But if I step outside of that confinement, something weird happens to me. And if I'm, I didn't know that alcohol produced a solution for me. I didn't know that. I did not know that alcohol had the subtle, cunning, and baffling, and powerful effect to make me seemingly be as normal as you look right now. And I didn't know that that seed was planted in my mind like a computer chip. And here's how that computer chip goes. Wayne, you're really ugly, pal. It's too bad. Nobody likes you. Nobody's ever gonna. Your captain, he don't like you. He's using you. All them people out there, they're just out to get you. You're a real victim, pal. You didn't ask to be born anyway, did you? I'm the only friend you got. I'm Budweiser. <laughs> Drink me. And I want you to know something. It's that subtle. And I don't even know it. I don't know that this strange feeling of difference overwhelms me. And I race back to get a bottle of Budweiser because unconsciously to me, it is the only element in my life that for a little while makes me feel comfortable enough to sit with you. To be a man amongst men. To be man enough to be with a woman. And to take that away from myself or to have someone else remove it against my will is a terrible thing to do to a person like me. Well, I got detached to that captain. And uh, one day the captain asked me to babysit his kids. That's an honor. i got to tell you something. People who respect me and I respect them, I do what they ask. I just do it. I don't question it. That's kept me sober and alive in AA. But the captain asked me to babysit his kids. And I said, yes, sir. I checked out the ship's company car. I drove over to the house to pick up his two little kids. I put them in the car. On the way there, I picked up a six-pack of bud. And here's how it went. In my mind, I said to myself, Wayne, let's stop and get a six-pack of bud. My disease wasn't talking to me. I was talking to me. I said, Wayne, let's stop and get a six-pack of bud. What the hell? We've only drank twice before. <laughs> Nothing really bad happened. <laughs> and then I did a little rationalization, they call it. First time I drank, I did a very near Catholic thing. I reproduced. <laughs> Second time I drank, I saved my family's life. Based on that, I stopped and got a six-pack of butt. And I drank it. And I put his kids in the car to go get another six-pack of Bud, and that's all I remember. I blacked out. Now, you can come out of blackouts in various difficult situations. I came out of this with my captain two inches from my face, screaming, where's my kids? I didn't have a clue. I wanted to know, but I didn't know where I put them. That bothered him. <laughs> we did some research and found them. Blackouts are interesting. I used, you know, I really didn't understand them. It, my mind tells me that something bad should always happen in them, but it doesn't always happen bad. Just what I did was I took his kids to his sister's house and uh, went and finished my drinking. And I tried to explain to the captain I basically did the right thing. I mean, I really didn't lose them after all, did I? Have you ever tried to reasonalize with a captain of a ship when he just found out you lost his kids? He don't care where you put them. And he restricted me to the ship. And when he told me I had to stay on the ship all weekend, I had to jump ship. 
I just I can't do that. When someone tells me thou shalt not, I've got I got to. It's like turning me loose in a in a park with a wet paint sign on a park bench. I can't leave till I know if the paint's still wet or not. I don't know why. <laughs> Some of my mind clicks. Uh, I wonder if it's wet. I'll take the sign down if it's not. Just my mind works in mysterious ways. And uh, the captain streaked me ship. I jumped ship, got drunk uneventfully for the fourth time in my life, snuck back onto the ship, went and saw my captain Monday morning. Unbeknownst to me, that captain, who respected me a great deal, uh, had talked to a, a guy by the name of Joseph Persh over the weekend about a treatment program he'd opened up at Balboa Naval Hospital. And they were re- re- recommending me for that program. And I went crazy. I said, I ain't no alcoholic. I've never drank out of a brown paper bag. Look at my service record. People like me don't become alcoholic. What have I ever done to you? I didn't lose your kids. I just forgot where I put them. And I was fuming. And uh, I refused to go to treatment for alcoholism. How can I be an alcoholic after only four times of drinking? You know, I've come to learn in AA, doesn't matter how much I drink. Doesn't matter how long I drink. Doesn't matter what I drink when I do drink. It only matters what happens to me for me when I do drink and eventually to me because of the phenomenon of craving. You know, I qualified for AA that very first time. And I didn't know that. I didn't know that I was condemned to drink much more. I'm not going to go into all that. I'll just tell you a couple more experiences. After that, I left the Navy. I gave, I was given an honorable discharge because of my service record. They put a little code number on there that made sure they wouldn't make that mistake again. <laughs> and uh, it basically dishonored me. They discharged me a chronic addict. Never done a drug in my life, but they said a chronic addict. And uh, they said, you'll never be nothing, go nowhere, or accomplish anything. And uh, I went home, and my wife with the two kids looked at me, and she moved out. She said, uh, my look on my face reminded her of someone who'd been on TV all that week. guy's name was Charles Manson. My wife said I was acting a lot like him. She moved out and never came back. To this day, has never come back. And I'm a good alcoholic. I found my second wife in a five-day blackout. She bought me a burger, so I married her. I figured it was God's will since it was a blackout. And... Uh, Alcoholism is progressive, incurable, and most oftentimes fatal, and it's a family illness. It affects us all. And uh, I wasn't understanding of that until I came to you. But, uh, you know, I started drinking more, and her and I birthed a couple of kids, and, and you know, I'm not paying the rent. We live in, we live in this building above a, a, a laundromat. There's cockroaches everywhere, dirty diapers in the alleyways. It was, we were the only white family in the building. It was predominantly Mexican. And it was in a, it was in a poverty riddled part of town and our rent was $60 a month. It was one room and it had a closet and we had a top dresser door that I put my littlest baby in and a bottom dresser door that I put my biggest baby in. And that's where we lived. And I got evicted for failure to pay rent. And they got put out into the cold and that's how I lived because I had to drink. And I didn't know I had to drink. I loved Budweiser so much it didn't look like that to me. It looked like something else completely to me. I didn't understand I was in the grips of a fatal progression of an obsession. That was going to take me down and everybody around me. I didn't know that. Remember, my daughter caught me breaking into her piggy bank one night, so I go to Larry's Oasis and shoot pool. I tried to convince her I was putting money back in. And then I remember that night that, uh, you know, I, I get scared of the dark. And I'm carrying guns and knives now, and, and I don't know what's going to happen to me. And I'm having blackouts all the time, and me and the wife are doing the midnight drill almost every night, wondering where I've been. I can't tell her. Uh, and this one night I came in about 2 in the morning. And I'd been drinking quite a while, and she asked me where I'd been, and I couldn't tell her. I was going to make up a lie because I couldn't remember. And uh, we'd woken the two kids up, and they'd come down into the room to watch this fight like they always had. And I had this, like, out-of-body experience. Something happened so incredible that it still 
gives me goosebumps when I when I talk about it. But I saw myself put my wife down. I took that 357 out of my boot, put it to my wife's head, and I pulled the trigger. And you know, I, I remember for a split second scanning the room in stark fear. My two girls' mouths were just wide open, not a word coming out of it. But it was just a fragment of a second because then it occurred to me the gun didn't go off. The gun misfired. Isn't that interesting? I still got that round at home. It's a 357 hollow point. It's got the firing pin and then it in the cap. It just didn't go off. She left me anyway. <laughs> By the way, if you're judging me right now, I deserve it. Thank you. But that leads me to believe if you're judging me for that, that you've never drove drunk with your kids in the car or that you've never drank while pregnant. See, Alcoholics Anonymous has to be neutral. There can be no judgment here. There will be no freedom for any alcoholic to walk in the door and find the recovery that I was allowed to find because there's been alcoholics worse than me in AA, and they're surra I'm surrounded by them. I'm surrounded by alcoholics in my home group that were a lot worse than me in their conduct, and I feel safe with them. But it's because of that non-judgment I get to be here with you. But I'll tell you about what kind of alcoholic I really am, what kind of guy I am. She did leave. And I sat by that door, and I don't cry very much unless it has something to do with me. <laughs> See, that doctor was right. I didn't have a... I had what's called a got-caught conscience. When I get caught, I feel real bad. <laughs> My wife left, took the two kids, and I sat there by that door and bowled like a baby for three days. Three days. Couldn't move. I just... Like a little child that bowled up and just could not move. And I started making deals with God. I said, God, if you bring her back, I'll swear I'll never drink again, ever. I'll swear on a Bible, anything. If you bring her back, I'll sell my gun. Bring her back, I'll sell all my guns. <laughs> then I went for the big one. Bring her back, I'll take a job. <laughs> Three days later, there's a knock on the door. This is my wife. With the two kids. And I answered the door, and she looked me in the eye, and she says, can we come home? And something come over me. Just that fast, the desperation was gone. And I looked at her and I said, well, I don't know. <laughs> you hurt me when you left. If you promise never abandon me like that again, you can come home. And you know what? She moved back. Such is the way of life of the alcoholic. Alcoholism truly is a family spiritual disease. And I'm grateful for the fact that I get to have a seat in Alcoholics Anonymous, one which I work for, one which someone could take over for me anytime I want to leave AA. And that's what led me to AA. I didn't know that because I would have never come to AA. I've got some problems. I know i got some few mental problems, but I ain't no alcoholic. I did not know that I was engulfed in this obsession because I didn't have the information I've got from the experience you shared with me about yourself. But I left that house because I guess there was a little spark of decency in me that I didn't know I had. But I knew that if I didn't leave, I was going to do something terrible that was irreparable. And I moved out, and after a while, I was ending up on the street. I had nowhere to go. I wouldn't work. I just wouldn't work. And it was easier for me to steal than it was to work. I just didn't care. And you know what? Something happened to me. Janis Joplin's theme song became my hit. Freedom, just another word for nothing left to lose. And I lived like that. You couldn't help me if you wanted to, because I don't care. How many times have you heard someone say, I don't care? I don't care. That became my theme song. You need help. I don't care. You know what? If you get a job, you'd feel better. I don't care. You know, if you pay your child support, you can see your kids. I don't care. 
And you know, people can only hear that for a little while before they got to move on. And I alienated myself from everybody and everything that meant anything to me. And I got to the point where I had to sleep in a dumpster because it was just too freezing cold in wintertime to stay on the street. I did find out if you burrow down into about three feet of garbage in a big dumpster, you don't get frostbite. And if you're hungry, what the hell, it's right there. <laughs> and uh, one winter, it, in, the, in, the, in the winter of uh, 72, it just got too cold to stay in that dumpster, just too cold. And I found this car parked behind Harvey's restaurant. And this is where I clicked in because I heard this speaker 20 years and four months ago. And as I was hearing him talk, my life was flashing before my eyes in certain ways. And if you've heard him talk a number of times, you'll, you'll identify it. But I was sleeping in this car behind Harvey's restaurant. I was mopping and waxing the dining room floors for two sausage sandwiches on whole wheat toast. The owner of that restaurant was a guy named Harvey, and he was in AA. I didn't know it wouldn't matter mattered anyway because I'm not an alcoholic. I've got some serious problems, but it'd be okay. Anyway, I've been in psych wards, and they're not bad. I've been diagnosed 17 times. Remember, I was diagnosed bipolar manic. I went to my sponsor and I said, I'm bipolar. He says, I know it. <laughs> he says, one of these days you're going to be walking down the street and you're going to hear this very loud explosion. <laughs> so it's going to be your head coming right out of your butt. You won't be bipolar no more. <laughs> Ain't quite the solution I wanted. But uh, Harvey came in one night and he gave me his brass coin with two A's on it. And he says, I'm going to give you an address. I'm going to send you to see some friends of mine. They're going to help you. Now, here's what I heard him say. I know you're hungry. They're going to give you some food to eat. I know you're broke. I'm going to give you some pocket dough. And I know you smoke. They'll give you three or four packs of pell-mell tailor-made cigarettes. Because I hadn't had a tailor-made for a long time. And uh, that's what I heard him say. If he had explained himself to me or found it necessary that I understand, I would have never went there because I'm not an alcoholic. He said, go there, they'll feed your stupid butt. Go there. So I went there. Hungry. 416 16th Street, Moline, Illinois. I'll never forget it. On the side of the building, it had a big sign that said, Building Condemned. Do not enter. Right underneath was another sign with an arrow pointing right into the basement. The cellar windows were painted black. It said AA 16th Street, welcome. That almost made me crazy. Didn't know if I should go in there or not. Now, if I didn't know that I was going into Alcoholics Anonymous, I'd never went in there. I was going in there to get free food and a pack of cigarettes. So I went in there and hurried. And I didn't notice that doorway was 510-ish. I caught it right across the eyebrow. And it literally knocked me off my feet. And I slid into my first meet at Alcoholics Anonymous. I did. About six feet inside the door was this big round table with six or seven old fools waiting to die and go to the AA meeting in the sky. I didn't know that. But I slid between two of the oldest, crankiest, crankiest ones. This ugly one got up out of his chair and goes just like this. He says, slide right in here, dummy. We got a wrench to fit every nut that comes in the door. I didn't like him right away. I started reaching for my gun. And then he said, the only thing he could have stopped me from pulling it out. He says, Dummy? I said, my name's Wayne. He says, I got it. Dummy? <laughs> they talk to you like you're a dog. He says, I'm going to be your sponsor. That saved his life. 
I've never been to AA. Why is that? I play baseball. Sponsors pay for everything. I get up out of that floor and proceed to follow him everywhere. I hated him, though. Hated his guts. The more I hated him, the more I followed him. And he knew it. And I drank for five more years. I found it very necessary to drink after that meeting. I couldn't stand them. They had too many teeth and too much money to trust. And they weren't sharing. But Barney says, come with us and do what we do. For the next five years, I went with him and drank the entire time. I drank before the meeting. Because you see, I knew something about them that I didn't think they knew about me. I wish I was as old as them. I wish I was as bad as them. If I was like them, I could probably stop drinking too. I didn't know I was making my case different again. I didn't know that. But they let me follow them around. They gave me jobs to do an AA. I didn't know why. They had me sweeping the floor. They said I could handle something like that. He said, here's how you sweep. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. They had me cleaning ashtrays, washing coffee cups, setting up the chairs, taking down the chairs, setting up the chairs, taking... Why do we got to take them down all the time? He says, so we can put them up again. <laughs> Stupid stuff like that. And they never once told me to quit drinking. They said, this program tends to work better if you don't drink. And... uh this one night I, uh, I came in, it had been about four and a half years, and I really wanted to stop drinking. I just didn't think it was in me. I didn't think I could do it. And I came in this meeting where I'd caused all my havoc in my, in my uh, slipping. And uh, my sponsor yelled out, hey, dummy. I don't think he called me that. I think that was my perception. He says, this program tends to work better if you don't drink. And that's what I heard. And I reached down into my boot, and I pulled that gun out and fired off around at my sponsor. Missed him six inches high. There's a story at my group that if Barney would be six foot tall, he'd be six foot under. <laughs> I came through the next morning in six-point leather restraints, naked, tied to a steel bed in the center of a padded room at Franciscan Mental Health in Rock Island, Illinois. I was black and blue from head to toe from a little AA group therapy. <laughs> He said nothing personal. <laughs> I had a visitor that morning. You know who it was? Yeah, this is my sponsor. He got even with me. I'm laying there naked, face up, and the nurse is with him because she's got to guard me. And my sponsor looks at me and he says, There's something wrong with you. Something wrong with you. And he looked at the nurse and he pointed at part of my anatomy and goes like this. <laughs> And then he said it, and I've heard it a thousand times since. Not the judgment that we hear from the people who don't understand. He looked down at me and he said, you know what, if they let you out of here, and I'm not sure they're going to. He says, I don't even understand what kind of alcoholic you are. He says, but if they let you up from there and come with us and do what we did and still do, I believe you can stay sober too. And I heard that. Three months later, I got out. They weren't going to let me out. And uh, they released me to him. And... Uh, I took my, what appears to be my last drink, November 8th, 1977. And I wish I could tell you that that's when my problems ended. But i got to tell you, that's when my problems began. And I didn't know that. You know, the first year I was sober, I did everything my sponsor said. I followed him around everywhere he went. And uh, never argued with him once. Never debated an issue. And then something happened when I took my ear chip and realized I was a miracle. 
Hey, a lot of people told me I was a miracle. And I like that feeling. I came up here and gave you a miracle speech. And then I looked over at my sponsor and with 20-some years of sobriety and thought, God, how pathetic you are after 20 years. Look at me after a year. I work for the sewer department. Clean out toilets. And look at you. You're retired successfully. I have realized I've outgrown him spiritually. So I fired him. Hired my new sponsor. For the next seven years, I did steps 1, 12, and 13. By the way, ladies, if any of you here today are in your first year of sobriety and I come up to you after this meeting and say, Hey, would you like to go have coffee and talk about God? Run! Seven years sober. I weigh 146 pounds. I've lost my upper denture. I don't know where it is and I don't care. I am more despairing than I was when I found AA. I know AA doesn't work for someone like me. I'm glad it works for you, but it don't work for me. Get out of my way before I have to hurt you. That was my attitude. And I raised a lot of hell in AA. And I didn't think it was ever going to end. And I became suicidal sober. I'm going to kill myself. So I went to a psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist drew my blood and he took a test and he diagnosed me bipolar, manic depressive, said I needed lithium and uh, amitriptyline. And uh, I was going to take it. And somewhere from something that I heard on a tape, not according to that chemical, but different ones, I heard it on a tape. And because I heard that on a tape, I called my sponsor and said, what do you think? Should I take it? He says, I'm not a doctor. He says, but why don't you try the 12 steps first? And that really made me mad. Because, see, I've been coming to meetings for seven years. I've learned how to talk about the steps. Because I learned if you talk about the steps, the old timers stay away from you. <laughs> talk about God, the women will come closer. That's what I learned. And if you learn that, it can kill you like it almost killed me. And uh, in my seventh year sponsor, my, my, my seventh year sobriety, my sponsor didn't know what to do with me. He said, uh, he said, put the medication on hold. And he sent me out to Southern California. Put me on a Greyhound bus, one-way ticket. <laughs> Got off the midnight mission. And uh, I was wearing that hideous lime green suit. <laughs> and uh, the twists and turns of AA, uh, I can't explain them. But I walked down to the midnight mission and I was expecting Clancy from everything I've heard to be cruel and to be mean and, and to tell me what he thought I should have done. And, and what happened was uh, he says, how you doing, kid? And here I am, 146 pounds, no teeth. We are like men who have lost their teeth. We don't grow new ones. <laughs> and I had this suitcase with me like I was going somewhere. And uh, I looked at him and I says, I'm doing fine. And he shocked me and surprised me just like I now know he would. He said, come on in, let's talk about it. Isn't that amazing? There is no judgment here. Though we do judge, there's no judgment. And uh, I spent six months in Southern California doing what the Pacific Group does. And I went back to Illinois because I had a lot of wreckage to clear up. And uh, I didn't think there was any hope for me. But when I left the Pacific Group after that six months tour of duty, went back to Illinois and started a group called the Midwest Group. They didn't want that group. <laughs> and I wanted them to want it. And I did what a lot of us do. 
I forced myself upon people and caused a lot of grievances, which I've made amends for. But I wanted what they had at that facility, what that, that, that group. I wanted a yard, so I made a yard. I had a yard. I used a psychiatric hospital gymnasium because then I could just pluck them and play with them. <laughs> My seventh year sobriety, I went through the steps, honestly. I didn't play any games. You know, it's an interesting thing. I was reading the 12 and 12. This is after I spent six months in California and identified with my type of alcoholic. I identified. I'm no longer different. You know, I, I felt at home. And uh, there was something that happened to me there. We was playing volleyball at the yard, and I was afraid. And I was on the old-timer team because I had almost eight years at that time. And some people on the other side of the net resented the fact that I'd only come there twice and was playing on that team. And, and uh, I had made a mistake at the net, and, and Clancy stopped play. And he looked at me and said, run down to the gate and see if there's anybody there. I looked at him and I thought, there ain't nobody at that gate. But I ran down there anyway. And I ran back and I said, there ain't nobody there. And he gave me the green he gave me. And then we started playing. And all that animosity melted away. <laughs> Pretty slick. I didn't know that. I know what happened that day. Now I need to know that because I don't want to lose sponsorship. I want to stay in the sponsorship of AA. But I was reading the 12 and 12 and here's what came clear to me. On page 15, paragraph 3, here's what it says. Deep down inside every man... Or that's on page 55 of the big book. Page 15, paragraph 3, it says, AA's 12 steps are a group of principles, spiritual in their nature, which, if practiced as a way of life, and that's a condition, if practiced, if practiced as a way of life. And if you're new and you want to know how to stop drinking, it says it can expel the obsession to drink and enable the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole. And I submit to you that's all I've ever wanted. Just to be happy, useful, and whole. But see, when you're retarded and you come from a family like I come from and you have alcoholism like I do, you know there's no hope for you. There's no hope. Where are you going to go? Now, no one did that to me. But I started sponsoring people. Started working with alcoholics that were twisted worse than I was. I didn't think that was possible, but they found me. <laughs> In my ninth year of sobriety, I did something I can't do. Now, remember, I've been listening to these tapes. And I've got a sponsor in Illinois, and I've been listening to these tapes, and I'm doing what's on these tapes. And uh, I had tapes of Clancy and Chuck and Johnny and uh, Norm A and Chuck C, and I listened to them. I wanted that AA. I wanted that. And I cleared up the wreckage of my past. I got my felony record expunged, and I had this wild hair in my nose that I could become a police officer. <laughs> I've always wanted to be a police officer. But with my history, it's tough. So I did all the footwork. It was a joke, really. I applied for the Polk County Sheriff's Office in Des Moines, Iowa. I put on the application. I told the truth. My sponsor, I went to my sponsor because a few people told me to lie on it because if I put the truth on there, I'll never get hired. So I told my sponsor, and he says, well, you can lie. But if you do, they won't pay your unemployment when you lose your job. And if you drink behind that lie, then people that told you it's okay to lie won't drink with you. I didn't lie. Because I want to start lying where it said name. And I know what Social Security number does to you. But I did. And you know, even though my record was expunged and I had the paperwork to prove it, I wrote down my felonies. And I wrote down there I was expunged. And I got, I got called in for the physical agility. I got called in for the psychosocial exam. <laughs> Took the MMPI again. And I went in for my interview. And to make a long story short, they hired me into the reserve program so they could watch me. Reserves want to watch you. And I was reserved for a year. 
and then I got on as a deputy sheriff of Polk County. And I worked a lot at the psychiatric hospital. And you know, I didn't know it, but my mind was beginning to clear. It isn't because I thought my way into a new way of being. If I would have thought my way into a new way of being, it would have never happened. I took actions that I guarantee you, if I wasn't desperate and hopeless and no one removed that desperation from me, I would not have done that. And you see, the people in my life in AA did not remove any of the desperation. They kept it there. They said, go do this, go do that, go do this. But they didn't do it for me. But they supported me. And that allowed me to do that. And I, I became a police officer. And I always wanted to live out in Southern California. That was my dream. But I had a lot of problems. I had a lot of problems I had to overcome. But by the process of just suiting up and showing up, doing the drill. You know, I, I told you I've got a working relationship with God. But i got to tell you something. I've seen people leave AA with that devotion. And I see him come back. That's not blasphemy. I'm not putting it down. I remember this one time my wife took me to a tent revival trying to help me. I went to this Baptist tent revival. You know where they got two tents going at the county fair? And my wife took me to the port side. And I'm in the front row and this Baptist minister's preaching at me. I know he's talked to my wife. And I'm in the front row and I'm starting to feel something. I'm not making fun of it. I started to feel something. Something was happening to me. And you know, by the time that two-hour revival was done, I was on my knees at altar call. And that preacher was putting his hands on me. My wife was over there talking in some language I ain't never heard before. Couldn't find out it was tongues. I don't know what that means. I'm a heathen. And by the time that was done, I really did feel something happen to me. I truly did. I wouldn't make fun of that. Hell, I floated to my car. My wife had that Alamon look of hope. We got in the car. I'm on the way home, and I'm talking about all the things Hank talked about. All the good things that are going to happen to us now. I'm going to be a better father to my kids. I'm going to go to AA and be a good AA. All those things are going to happen now. But we passed Larry's races. And I said to my wife, Ellen, I need to go tell, tell Larry about this. My wife says, you think that's a good idea? I said, yeah, I got Jesus. I'm fine. I believed it. I walked in the back door of the saloon. Larry was bartending. We looked at each other, and he said, my God, what's gotten into you? And I said, Larry, the Spirit of Jesus is in me, and you need him too. He said, yes, I do. Can I buy you a bottle? We'll talk about it. I said, okay. And I drank it. I'm not putting that down. I really believe. It's not about that. It's about a condition in my mind that's an obsession that overpowers all other ideas. But because one alcoholic shared his personal experience with me and allowed me to be in here and do what you do, that obsession began to lift. Now I know why my sponsor had me all that do that foolish stuff I thought was foolish. Taking commitments. Washing cups. Cleaning ashtrays. Shaking hands with people I don't like. Taking newcomers to coffee and paying for it. And then buying them food and paying for it. And then they puke it right back up on you again. you got to clean it up. Doing that because you love AA. See, I do love AA. When I tell you I love AA, what I'm really saying to you is, is that I respect and honor the 12 traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm a guardian of the traditions. I believe in this program. I believe that we're only 62 and a half years old, and if we don't safeguard ourselves, nobody else will. I believe we are responsible for that, and that's why I've got the sponsor I've got, and that's why I hang with the people I hang with, because I want to be a part of the winner's circle. That's not judgment on anybody else. I want to be part of the winner's circle, and now I know why. It's so I never have to drink again. See, I don't do much out of virtue. I wish I was a virtuous guy. I wish I could walk the little old lady across the street without a motive. But I always go for the purse. I don't understand. I mean it all when I leave the curb. My sponsor uh, had me doing these things. Now I understand why. And I do it today still. 
You see, alcohol produced this effect for me, newcomer. It made me lose all that anxiety and fear and that, that, that terrible feeling of inadequacy and made me feel like a man. And the book says if I don't find a sufficient substitute for that power, for that effect, I am doomed to drink again. And I had no idea that washing a cup would make me feel like I'm a part of. I had no idea that standing at the door, greeting people, taking commitments, being secretary of a meeting, being a treasurer, being a GSR, would make me feel like a sense of belonging. And as I took the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, that those feelings of difference would dissipate enough that I could stay sober one day at a time. And I also know in my heart that if I stop doing these actions, that those feelings of difference will slowly come back. And all of a sudden I'll be drunk and I'll be shaking my fist on the bar saying, why? Why? What happened? What, I quit going to meetings? Something happens before that. Because I have found in my experience that a group that has a strong sponsorship ethic and a home group environment, that we get caught up in the motion of the business of living. And in that motion of the business of living, I don't have time to think about all my terrible problems. I have a chance to be outside of myself for just a little while. And it allows me to start to have relationships with people. It starts to allow me to have a freedom I never had before. And uh, something happened here last November. Uh, well, actually December. I celebrated my 20th year. And I've had, I don't want to gross you out, but uh, I've had bad teeth on the bottom for a long time. It was really terrible. But I made a decision 15 years ago that I was going to live with it because I couldn't sit in a dental chair. You know, 30 years ago, I had some teeth pulled against my will, and I just could not. The, the reasons don't matter why, but the fact is I could not sit in a chair, and I was willing to not do that. I'm going to quote something that's become a favorite thing for me. A movie was just out with Jack Nicholson, my favorite actor. As good as it gets. There's a line in there, because I identify with Jack Nicholson. <laughs> in as good as it gets. He looks at that woman and she says, say something romantic. And he broke out into a full body sweat. I understand that. And he said, you make me want to be a better man. And I've got to tell you something. That's exactly. I follow my sponsor around like a whip pump. I follow my home group around like a whip pump. It's not that I'm a brown noser. It just makes me want to be a better man. And that's true. And uh, Clancy, uh, we had my 20 year party. He doesn't know this. I kind of surprised him with it. We're sitting on the stage and he's reading my card and somebody snapped a picture. And I had a full smile on. And they sent me that picture anonymously. And i got to tell you something. I saw those teeth and I couldn't stand it. I didn't want that. And uh, I called the VA and started doing some work. I called him a lot. I was scared to death to sit in that chair. So I finally went and got there. And I sat in the chair and, and the, the dentist came in. It was a Vietnamese dentist. I thought, what do you think you're going to do? And she came at my mouth with a needle. And I kept reciting the serenity prayer. I kept saying to myself what I knew my sponsor and other people would say to me, that I'd be all right. And then another doctor came in and took over. He's a dentist from Cedar sinai Uh, He comes to the VA once a week to teach. And the head dentist at the VA is a member of AA. And he sent him in there to take care of my teeth. And he had that Vietnamese dentist assist. And they pulled what teeth was left. And uh, I'm a better man for that. But see, I wouldn't have done it out of virtue. I did it because I didn't want to look bad sitting with my sponsor. That's really true. That's what motivates me. And then uh, I decided to move on to something else. See, this all happens as we take actions. I didn't plan it. I did not sit down and think, this is what I'm going to do. This is... 
All I did was suit up and show up and do it. Sponsorship and the AA request pose upon me. Inconveniently at most times. I sponsor a guy named Gary who's uh, in a psychiatric hospital. Uh, he's medicated and, and he's going nowhere. And, and I ended up being his sponsor and he's in law school now. And I thought, my God, he can do that. He's goofy. Why can't I do something like that? And uh, I had a talk with my sponsor. And, and uh, I don't know where this faith came from, but I, I don't know if I want to be a lawyer or not. So I got signed up for a, a paralegal school. So I'm doing that right now. And it's not easy. But I'm doing it. And I sat in the front row and I'm listening. I just started. It's wonderful. I'm just getting going. But you know what? I believe I can do it. That's the power of 12 suggested steps. And that's the power of the AA way of life. To take a guy like me, retarded at best, very dangerous at the worst, and the process of the actions I take contrary to my thinking have turned me into what appears to be a decent, loving human being by the actions I take. Thanks for letting me share.